This is a very special episode. Today, we are joined by Apollo 9 Lunar Module Pilot, Rusty Schweikart. Of course, there's so much more to Rusty than just Apollo 9, so we hope to find out as much as we can for you. Do you have a favorite Rusty story? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And don't forget to please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy Enjoy episode 132 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. How are you doing, Emily? I am doing great. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm kind of on a high. Of, we we already taped the interview for this week's show. So right now I'm just kind of like, oh my gosh, that was so freaking cool. <laughs> so uh, I, I hate admitting this. I'm a little bit starstruck. So yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Very busy over here, but all good. Let's just get on with it, shall we? Let's get on with this week's main feature. As Emily said, Russell Swicart was born on October 25th, 1935 in New Jersey. And I assure you, you're not going to believe you're listening to an 87-year-old. Anyway, he has two degrees from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering, and a Master of Science degree in Aeronautics and and astronautics. His thesis for this degree was about stratospheric radiation. He joined the US Air Force in 1956 and achieved over 4,000 hours of flight time, including 3,500 hours in high-performance jet aircraft. Before joining NASA's astronaut corps, he was a research scientist at the Experimental Astronomy Laboratory at MIT, where he was working on a range of topics, including upper atmosphere physics, star tracking, and stabilization of stellar images. Rusty was chosen to be one of 14 NASA astronauts in October 1963. This was the third group of astronauts chosen, and he was the youngest of the group. I believe he was 27 or 28 at the time. So, originally selected as a backup for Roger Chaffee for the Apollo 1 mission alongside Jim McDivitt and Dave Scott, this crew eventually got promoted to a different mission to fly the first crewed test flight of the Apollo lunar module in Earth orbit. Eventually, Apollo 9 launched on March 3rd, 1969 and lasted 10 days, 1 hour and 54 seconds. Rusty performed the first spacewalk, or EVA, of the Apollo program, and the mission was a huge success, with McDivitt and Schweikert putting the lunar module through all the tests it needed to complete before NASA committed to sending Apollo 10 to the moon. Schweikert later served as backup commander for the first Skylab mission, where his work in overcoming initial solar shield problems earned him NASA's Exceptional Service Medal. In 1974, Schweikert moved to NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. to assume an executive position in NASA's Space Applications Directorate. He retired from NASA in 1977. His post-NASA career is incredibly interesting. Away from spaceflight, he served in a variety of political posts. He was the California Governor Jerry Brown's assistant for science and technology. He was also a commissioner of energy for the state of California, a commission which he chaired for three and a half years. He also chaired the United States Antarctic Program Safety Review Panel for the director of the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. from 1987 to 88. 
1997 to 1998, he served on the Antarctic Program Outside Review Panel. As a result of this work, the US Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station was fully rebuilt. Yes, his uh, post-NASA space work has also been incredible. He founded the Association of Space Explorers, which is an international professional society of astronauts and cosmonauts. He also co-founded the B612 Foundation, a non-profit private foundation that champions the development of spaceflight capability to protect Earth from future asteroid impacts. In 2014, he co-founded Asteroid Day, which is June 30th every year and is dedicated to public education on the impact threat and other features of asteroids. We spoke about this a few weeks back, but Emily recently wrote a wonderful article about Rusty in her blog, and I will post a link to that in the show notes. But with so many potential areas to talk about, let's start this interview with Rusty Swiker. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. All nine, you are go all the way. Everything looks good. Roger. All right. So, hello, Rusty. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. So, here at Space and Things, we like a good scene-setting question. So, at what point in your life did you think, hey, this astronaut thing sounds like something I might want to do, and, and why? Well, that, in my case, that was pretty specific. You know, I was uh, MIT engineer, blah, 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 fighter pilot, etc. But, to be honest, like a lot of Kids, I, I mean, and you know, to me today, someone who's in his twenties is a kid. I really never quite knew what I wanted to do. I did a lot of interesting things, had done and would have done, but uh, mainly what sort of appeared to be options at any one moment, uh, and the most interesting of them was the direction I would go. But I was a fighter pilot over in uh, eastern France after the Berlin Wall went up. And uh, John Glenn flew that spring when I was over there. And I can remember reading the base paper the next morning uh, over a cup of coffee. And uh, I got partway down through the article and sort of went off into a reverie of some kind. I think I was just putting myself in John's place based on the story that I was reading. And I remember sort of coming back to reality and my coffee was cold and I thought, wow, I've never done that before. And I thought, you know, I think I really want to do that. And for the first time in my life, I kind of looked at myself and said, you know, if you really want to do it, then you've got to commit to it. And so that was the first time when I really said, whoa, that's what I want to do. I want to be one. Wow. So... As you mentioned, before you worked at NASA, you were a research scientist at MIT and worked studying atmospheric physics, if I'm correct. Now, many astronauts, including Buzz Aldrin and Dr. Philip Chapman, to name two, got their start there. What was the atmosphere, no pun intended, like at MIT during that time? <laughs> well, actually, all three of us. I mean, uh, Phil and I were, were literally office mates. Uh, Buzz was directly in... I think the instrumentation lab at that time, it became the Draper lab and it is a Draper lab today. But uh, at that time it was called the instrumentation lab. And then our laboratory, which was called the, believe it or not, experimental astronomy laboratory. Um, if you can think of experimental astronomy, 
Phil and I were, uh, again, uh, research partners in that and, in fact, uh, office mates. So the atmosphere was, you know, that, that those were the early days of the space program. And it was, you know, a bit of a race with the Russians. We had gone through the embarrassment of being uh, one up by uh, the Soviet Union at that point, getting into space first with Sputnik and um, everything was uh, kind of trying to catch up. It was a pretty exciting time because for the first time in my life, and I think the first time that many people could remember, uh, education became a demand sport instead of a supply sport. MIT, like almost every technical school in time, was trying to somehow respond positively to the demand for technical education, and, and especially in the sciences. So it was kind of an exciting time, really. So I have a couple of Apollo 9 questions. So you and Commander Jim McDivitt worked extensively on testing and perfecting the world's first real spaceship, which was the Lunar Module. What was it like to work with McDivitt? And did you feel confident in the Lunar Module's capabilities pre-flight, even though it, it kind of looked scary? I mean, to me, it looked flimsy. <laughs> Well, you know, number one, let me put that to bed right away. Uh, working with Jim McDivitt was just absolutely a, a joy. I mean, Jim was a terrific guy, ended up in, in my life being one of my best friends. Um, Dave was good to work with, too. Dave was a little bit uh, edgier, let me put it that way. But uh, Jim and I, uh, you know, really enjoyed uh, working together, and the Lunar Module was and of course, we, we flew the first lunar module, as you as you point out, Emily. But it was not the first lunar module that we had. That is, uh, we we flew LEM three, and our first assignment was really LEM two, and that that was intended to be the first uh, lunar module to to fly in space. But Jim and I put a lot of time into the testing and checkout of LEM two up at uh, Grumman Aerospace on Long Island. Let me just say that it was it, it was pulling teeth. It was agony. It was uh, you know we would go in for what was ostensibly a two hour test, checking out some system, the environmental control system, or almost any almost every system when you when you come right down to it. And uh, instead of a two hour test, it would end up being a two day test or some ridiculous thing. I mean, we'd be five minutes into it, something would fail or something would happened that was not normal and we would go into a hold and we would join the engineers around the table and looking at blueprints and you know procedures and uh you know two hours later we'd start up again and we go for another 15 minutes and something else would happen we went through months of that i mean literally months and um it was, it was horrible finally jim and i looked at each other one day and said we're gonna have to bite the bullet and tell management that this thing really shouldn't fly. I mean, you know, we've got so many band-aids on it now and workarounds and things. I mean, this this is ridiculous. And we did, and they bought it, not easily, but and that was one of the several, you know, episodes we had where we we kind of threw a square wave into the into the system. You know, I think uh, all told, everyone agreed, yeah, if I were them, I wouldn't fly it either. <laughs> so we, we then switched to LEM-3, and LEM-3 came down the the testing line uh, very much cleaner. Groman had reorganized, uh, at our recommendation, frankly, the way in which they uh, 
organize things. And it was a much smoother operation after that. But when we flew it, we were very confident that that it was going to work. The, the issue wasn't so much one of safety or anything of that kind for us. It, w- it was, is it going to get the job done? And that was really the thing we were most interested in doing because, you know, the end of the decade of the 70s was, or 60s was, was coming up, right? <laughs> and that yeah. was our big goal. We're talking about March 1969, and two missions later was July. <laughs> it's only four months. Right. It's quite right. a quick turnaround there, wasn't there? Yeah, we were turning around pretty fast in those days. Yeah. Also, I was thinking earlier about being a 10-day mission. At the time, that would have felt like a long mission. People would have said, that's a long time in space. But nowadays, that doesn't seem so long for a space flight, does it? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I, I uh, On the one hand, I, I guess I, I don't have much envy for flying six months continuously, <laughs> but I sure do have a lot of envy looking at the guys and gals, you know, doing a spacewalk. I mean, spacewalk was uh, EVA is is a really really fun experience. Uh, it's absolutely great, and these guys are going out, you know, two or three times during one of their missions, and they'll be out for seven hours at a time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm incredibly envious of that. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's fast forward to Skylab, uh, which celebrates 50 years this year. So on yeah. May. May 14th, 1973, Skylab launched uh, and it reached orbit and it was missing several parts. Uh, so <laughs> you and your backup crew were essential in testing the procedures for fixing Skylab. So tell us a bit about the activities you took part in to save Skylab and really the whole the entire program. It was really a shock when, you know, we're all down at the Cape and, and in mission control or launch control down there and watching information come down from space that, that was really hard to figure out at first. And finally, we, we realized that one solar wing didn't seem to be present at all. The solar, the two wings came up on, on the side and the solar arrays came down from them. And they and they were sort of all folded down against the, if you, if you think of an old soup can where you had a label around it, you know, what the days when we used to have paper labels around soup cans. And um, that's about what it was. I mean, the thickness of a piece of paper around a soup can is a pretty good model. But uh, the air got under the atmosphere during the launch, um, uh, got under the leading edge of the thermal shield, the solar, what was, what was called a thermal, solar thermal shield, which was that uh, skin that was wrapped around it. And when it got into orbit, that skin would pop off by about an inch or so and act as a meteorite bumper, you know, where it would protect the skin of the spacecraft itself, the laboratory itself, from puncturing uh, with meteorite hits. But the atmosphere, just like sort of like taking your fingernail and running it down the side of a soup can, I mean, it just split the the label right in half. And and, uh, as the label flew off, it took one of the solar arrays with it. And as it turned out, we found out uh, over a few day period of a few days, it took the other solar array, which was still on there, and it constrained it from opening more than about five degrees. We were able to see that because a little bit of solar power was being generated by it as the sun would sort of sneak in in that five degree opening. Uh, so we knew it was there, but we didn't know what was holding it from deploying entirely. 
But right away, we're dealing with two very, very serious things. One is the absence of enough electrical power to do the mission, certainly as it was planned. And number two, because of the absence of that uh, thermal shield, uh, meteorite bumper shield, the temperatures started going up much above what they were supposed to be. And on board the spacecraft, on, on board the laboratory, of course, the Skylab laboratory was not only all of our food for the time we were going to be up there, uh, but the film, which was um, extremely important in terms of the goals of the mission to, uh, it was really the first solar telescope in, in orbit. And we li use literal film. I mean, <laughs> today everything is video. <laughs> film? What's that? You know? <laughs> but in those days, uh, if you know a big Samsonite suitcase, we had many of them filled with actual film, which uh, we had to retrieve and replace out on the Apollo telescope now. So the whole mission was in very, very serious jeopardy. I mean, it was essentially a failure in orbit but the question was wow can we do anything about it the crew in the laboratory launched as you recall separately the laboratory went up first and then the first crew was going to go up uh, uh four days later uh, I, th I think uh i don't know they maybe they're going to go up the next day i don't know whichever it was the opportunity to launch crew occurred every four days on a rolling basis so I immediately got into T-38 and headed over to Marshall Space Flight Center, where we had the laboratory in the big water tank over there. Uh, those, are, those later were at JSC in Houston, but at that time, the underwater facility uh, for simulating weightlessness and you know getting things ready for flight were over at Marshall Space Flight Center. So I flew over there because I had done all of the development work for the procedures for the EVAs. Having done EVA on Apollo 9, I was sort of Mr. EVA expert, and I that had been my development contribution as a backup commander to Skylab uh, for, for months. So I was um, went over there, and the big question immediately was, could we somehow get out on the outside of the laboratory, which of course we were never intended to do. We had a path to, you know, handrails and things to the film canister locations to the cameras, but we were never intended to get out on the outside of that big aluminum tube, you know, called the laboratory. And uh, so the first question was, was there any way we could get out there? And if there was, is there anything that we could do if we got there and what kind of tools would we have to develop and, you know, all kind of just wide open questions. So I can still remember, I mean, it was a really absolutely crazy time. I got to, to Huntsville, called ahead of time. The guys were getting the water tank ready so that I could get in a suit and, you know, be weighted out underwater. And that's a long process. Uh, they had everything ready. I got there, raced over to the water tank, donned the suit and, was partway down into the water and the, one of the guys at the console had answered a phone and he holds it up to me. I already got my helmet on. He, he you know, about to go underwater. He holds the telephone up. And he says, Deke Slayton is on the phone for you. 
And I thought, what in the world does Deke want? You know, so took off my helmet, reached up, grabbed the phone, and I talked to Deke, and he says, Rusty, he says, what do you, he said, you're about to get in the water tank? And I said, yeah, I've got to get some answers to these questions. And he says, get out of the water tank. And I said, what? And he said, <laughs> the press is on its way over there to, to try and find out what's going on. Get out of that water tank. And I said, Deke, forget it. And I handed the phone back to the guy and wow. went underwater. And I, I got it just again, right up to here with water. And the guy says, Deke again. <laughs> and I said, tell him I'm underwater. <laughs> so I went underwater, you know, totally disobeyed the boss, etc. But, you know, we had, there was no way we were going to get a, to be able to save this thing. I mean, if we were going to save it, we were going to have to do everything that had to be done within four days. Wow. Now, nothing ever gets, I mean, you can't yeah. do anything in four days, right? But uh, came out from the water tank. I knew we couldn't get down the side of the vehicle, but figured out other possibilities that we could do. Came out, met with a guy that I can still remember well after midnight, around one in the morning, drawing a picture on the board showing you know, a couple of things. This is what we have to do if we're going to save this thing. And it was like impossible to do in four days. But I had people that worked for me there. I mean, everybody basically ended up working for me in terms of what it was we were doing while they all had their individual bosses and everything. Um, I mean, the whole focus was on getting that job done. And I'll tell you, I had... I don't know how many people, more than a couple dozen people who didn't sleep at all for over three days. Wow. And we went, we went around the clock, conceiving, designing, having people manufacture, deliver from across the country, get it in the water tank, test it, verify it, train the crew. I mean, we did all of that with what it took to rescue the Skylab. Two things, both to raise the solar array so that we got the electrical energy and then to put over a, a sun shield so that we would not over temp everything in the in the laboratory. So, you know, it was the most um, intensive and frankly miraculous engineering feat, I think, that I've ever heard of, Frank, to be honest with you. It was just amazing. Unfortunately, never written up. Correctly, because I was doing other things when Joe and and uh, uh, I guess Paul White's put out the book. Yeah, I, I, I'm working on it, so I'm trying to get <laughs> stuff out there. I'm I'm working on it slowly, yeah. but I'm getting I'm getting there. All right, now swerving a little bit from Skylab. Um, I recall you also worked with Jacques Cousteau during a, a Landsat bathymetry <laughs> investigation. Uh, this was shortly after your Skylab experience. So what was it like to work with really the world's premier oceanography figure of that time? I loved it. I loved it. Uh, yeah, George Lowe, who was then the uh, deputy administrator of NASA under Fletcher, the, the first time Fletcher was the administrator, he was a diver. He knew I was a diver. And, and George was a good friend. He said, hey, I want you to be the liaison, the NASA liaison with with Cousteau. And the reason we were working with Cousteau 
and it was logical for me to do it was because uh, Landsat, the the remote first remote sensing satellite, and and by the way, on Apollo nine, we had done the first remote sensing from space with a gang of four Hasselblad cameras. But wow. I later was a kind of official interface between NASA and the outside world, or what we called the user community, in developing and using remote sensing for everything, agriculture, uh, economics, uh, demographics, all kinds of stuff that, that remote sensing is good for. But one of the things that was interesting is that in relatively shallow waters, you can actually determine the depth of the water by looking at the color and features on the bottom and deduce the, the depth of the water. That's called bathymetry, technically. And if we could do bathymetry from space, then that was really very interesting. We could get a lot of data and do a lot of bathymetry, which would have been much more expensive doing it, you know, in the traditional way. We could see like the Bahamas area where we did most of this work, we could see the Bahamas uh, from space easily and you could see what we wanted to do, but we had to have what's called ground truth. Okay, well, in this case, water truth, but nevertheless, <laughs> ground truth. And so the ground truth for what was the actual depth of the water that we were seeing, we were going to get by cooperating with Cousteau, who was interested in space technology and stuff. And, and the Calypso would be flying, you know, sailing around below in the waters there and measuring the actual depths at the same time that we would be uh, taking the images from, uh, from, from uh, space with the first Landsat satellite which, by the way, was called ERTS-1, <laughs> E-R-T-S, <laughs> ugly, ugly name. Uh, so I ended up being the liaison and working with Cousteau, and I was out on the Calypso. I've got a lot of fun pictures from, from those days and that kind of thing. One of the things I loved most about working with, with Cousteau was when we would go through an airport to catch a commercial flight somewhere that we were going together, uh, I would carry his luggage. And as we walked through the airport, everybody would recognize Cousteau. <laughs> and for a change, nobody would recognize the astronaut. Right? Amazing. And so I would sit there <laughs> off to the side watching Cousteau be hounded by public asking autographs of wanting to shake his hand and all of that. And I would just be smiling all at the side because nobody had any clue who I was. And it's usually the other way around, you know, at that in those days you you were you, you could hardly appear in public without being, you know, disrupted whatever you were doing. So it was a wonderful turnabout being fair play when I when I would travel with Pusto. And I got to know Jique and uh Gique was his familiar name. Uh I, I got to know Jique and, and his wife and you know, all of the Cousteau guys uh, very, very well and dove off the Calypso with them and blew T-38s out and buzzed them and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it was it was great fun working with Jake. And, and I came to know Philippe, his older, or actually his younger son, but at that time he was working with Philippe, sort of as his primary heir. And I got to fly Philippe in the T-38 and that was one of the 
few times. In fact, it was ba- basically the only time I ever flew a civilian with oh, me wow. in a T-38. So that was kind of fun. Nice. Okay, so after NASA, you established the Association of Space Explorers. Yeah. Do, do you think there's a commonality among among the people, whether they are career NASA astronauts or not, who have orbited and viewed the Earth? Do you think they've all experienced a type of overview effect? Well, I think everyone, the answer is yes, but to varying degrees. Um, it was certainly, uh, for me, a very impressive experience, partly because I had... I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I had a five-minute period due to a camera failure, and Dave Scott was trying to fix the camera to get it working again, and and McDivitt had told me to stay right there, and I was partway up the handrail on the front of the lunar module, and I just decided on the spur of the moment, hey, great, five minutes, I'm going to be a human being instead of being an astronaut, and I just let go with one hand and, and took in as totally as I could where I was and what was going on. And that, that was, um, in retrospect, you know, a profound life-changing experience, uh, for me. So it was an extremely powerful, uh, impression that shaped, you know, a lot of what I'd done afterward, including forming the association of space explorers, as you just mentioned, it was clear to me that, regardless of the the fact that I'm, you know, an American and a, you know, a fairly patriotic American, you know, frankly, I'm a citizen of planet Earth. And all of us on the planet share much more than we than the differences between it. I mean the similarities and the commonality is is much more important than the differences between us politically or economically or whatever. And, and so I was convinced that at the height of the Cold War, forming an organization of astronauts and cosmonauts where we could really get together and get to know one another and share our experience and, in a sense, be a witness to the public that this view of the Earth is extremely important in terms of bringing reality, the long-term reality, to, to bear in, in the general public. So I, I set about to do that in you know the, in the early '80s and um, got it done, and it still exists. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, there there is a commonality, and we really enjoy getting together. And I think uh, again, notwithstanding uh, national differences, which are not trivial and are not necessarily smooth as they are not at the moment. Nevertheless, we work together, and I'm really happy to see that the International Space Station and the cooperation in human spaceflight, at least, uh, continues. I hope we can keep it going. I hope that realization of the big picture uh, is still powerful enough to overcome the, the geopolitical temporal issues that we have to deal with. Absolutely. So you also co-founded the uh, B612 Foundation, which is dedicated to mitigating and preventing asteroid impacts on Earth. Now, I'm sure some have thought the idea of avoiding asteroid strikes seemed fanciful, um, but the DART mission recently, very recently, showed that this idea isn't something from science fiction. So what would you say to those who thought the idea was too far-fetched before DART happened? (laughs) <laughs> well, if I go back to when we formed the organization, which was in 2001 and 2002, 
um, you know, we used to call it the giggle factor. Um, <laughs> and the giggle factor was, you know, dominant in the uh, worldwide culture. I mean, the idea of, of being hit by space rocks was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. In the early 90s, uh the first reality of the dinosaurs uh, having been, you know, wiped out by a large asteroid impact uh, came uh, in through the Alvarez father and son. And uh, it, the giggle factor gradually diminished over time. But uh, the big question when we started the organization, when we first got together was number one, we were finding more and more asteroids whose orbits would cross the orbit of the Earth, you know, what we came to label near-Earth asteroids or near-Earth objects. But one of the big questions was, yeah, okay, sooner or later, we're going to get hit, but is there anything that can be done about it? And if the answer to that was yes, was the next question, uh, and the answer to that was yes, after a couple of days of, you know, back of the envelope, scratching of all different kinds, we decided, you know, Hard to believe, but yeah, we can, with adequate early warning, do something about it. So then the next question was, how do we do that? And most of us worked for the government. We had about 20 people in the meeting and probably four astronauts or something like that, four or five astronauts and four or five other NASA engineers and a few scientists and some nuclear guys from the NRC and other things. But at any rate, we, we, we looked at it and said, how in the world are we going to get the government to get serious about this? And we decided real fast, so there's no way we're going to be able to do that unless we had freedom of action. And the only way we could have freedom of action since I was retired and a couple of the guys were retired was to form a nonprofit organization where we could do what we wanted. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, NASA couldn't really or for that matter, the government in general couldn't say anything to it. I mean, we, you know, we're private citizens. We could do what we wanted. So we formed uh, that nonprofit organization and took it on ourselves to, to say, okay, I mean, our first task for basically the 10 years that I ran the organization was deflection. How do you do it? How, do it, how does it come about? How, who do we beat on to get things done? What kind of analysis work has to be done, design work, et cetera, et cetera. So we worked deflection um, for 10 years, and it was pretty clear that what was done on DART, which we call kinetic impact, that is just running into it, as most of us know, as we have any years of driving behind us, if someone runs <laughs> yeah. into you, it changes your velocity. <laughs> um, the key to deflecting an asteroid from an impact is five years ahead of time or something like that to change its velocity enough so that it misses the time of rendezvous. Not It doesn't change its direction. We don't care about changing its the direction it's going, but if you change the velocity of an asteroid, uh, then you're going to make it arrive earlier or later if you've got enough time between your deflection and the time it was going to hit. And that's what DART demonstrated. Uh, it didn't fully demonstrate what needs to be done, but it proved the basic concept and, and in fact, uh, was more effective than we actually expected it to be in, in that particular case. But that's not 
something necessarily generalizable. And so we need to do this more times than one. I mean, you know, this is the classic data point of one. You don't want yeah. to hang your hat on the data point of one when what you're doing is somewhat statistical. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've got some questions from our Patreon subscribers, which I'm going to present as quick fire questions, if that's okay. So the next four questions. <laughs> so you want quick fire answers? I know yeah. what you're saying. Well, I just think it'd be fun <laughs> if we could just perhaps get a few words or maybe just a brief sentence. Uh, I'd love to know fuller answers, but but uh, I think I think they all line up for this. So Karen Stern has asked if you could have had another flight in space. What would you have preferred? Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, or Shuttle? I would have preferred to land on the moon. <laughs> yes. The next one is Mike Bostwick has asked, is there one thing you wish had been included on your busy Apollo 9 mission plane? Ice cream. <laughs> Ice cream. Nice. Ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Alex, I think I'm saying his name right, Steiker, Steiker. Ask something similar. Is there an event, situation, or view that happened during Apollo 9 which you wish you had had a photograph of? Oh, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, yeah, in a way, it, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible, but I wish I could have had a picture of it. And that was, we were, we were looking down uh, at the Earth one night, uh, you, you know, during a, a, a night pass, and we had, Jim and, and Dave and I had all worn eye patches so that we could really see very well get well dark adapted and we're looking down at the earth and you know it's beautiful because there there's city lights of course around different places but also there's lightning weather fronts and lightning all along weather fronts and it's fascinating to watch the flashes go off and that kind of thing but every once in a while we would see a little flash and to the point where you weren't really sure you saw it and you wouldn't say anything for a while. And then finally, one of us said, I think I just saw a little flash. And the other one said, yeah, yeah, I saw one too, you know. <laughs> and we realized what we were seeing was little asteroids or meteorites going through the atmosphere below us. And it was like, of course, you know, duh. That means they went past us to get there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh, right. <laughs> they do that. So wow. I wish I could have had wow. a picture. It's kind of fun. <laughs> That's, That's crazy. Cool. That is cool. Okay, Ed Raffatz has asked if you played any part in promoting the space exploration merit badge to the scouts. I have not. No, I I, I didn't make it all that far in the, in the scouts in my day. I made it to life. I think I was a life scout or something like that. But that was. I, I, no, I, I didn't. I did not have anything to do with that. And finally, Toby Jeffries asks: After Apollo Nine, was there one lunar module quirk which surprised you at McDivitt, which you felt you had to pass on to the Apollo Ten and Eleven crews? You know, I, I'm going to say no. And on the other hand, uh, you know, we flew the second mission on the Saturn Five, and there was an experience during launch when we were in a command module, not the lunar module, where that was very much the case. And that was, you know, when you picture three guys, uh, gals, it doesn't make much difference because the spacesuits are big no matter what. And you got three of them lightly inflated, not really EVA sort of inflated, but nevertheless filled out. And you're laying side by side in that Apollo capsule 
uh, Apollo spacecraft, your, your arms are overlapping with the guy next to you, with the person next to you. And Jim, uh, or Dave Scott, I was on the right-hand side, Dave was in the middle, and Jim's on the left. But Dave and I sort of had our my left arm and his right arm overlapping, and yet we both had important things to do in case we had a problem on the pad and had to get out of the spacecraft really fast to save our lives, right? And so after Gunnar Vent, you know, the great <laughs> the great Pinamunda guy who used to strap us all into his spacecraft for years, uh, a wonderful guy, funny, funny guy. And uh, Gunnar had really tightened us in with our short, you know, with the shoulder straps and tightened them up. As soon as uh, the hatch was closed and they pulled the crew room back on the swing arm, Dave and I looked at each other and went, we unloosened our, our uh, shoulder straps so that we could get our arms to move around and get, <laughs> you know, get at what we needed to do in case it was an emergency. And we launch, you know, and you get to the end of first stage, you know, just before the first stage burnout and you think about it and, you know, that's where your acceleration is the highest. You start out barely over one and it climbs up until you're in, in those days. I think it was right around six G's or something like that. And you think about a tin can that's what, two, 300 feet high or something like that. And it's got, you know, seven million pounds of force crushing it. And it's a little shorter than it is when the engines would be shut off. So when the engine shut off, all of a sudden that tin can expands and we're at the upper end of it and it goes like that and stops. And Dave and I went flying forward and it was like, and you guys can see me, but you have to describe this. We, you know, you're normally about a foot and a half or something like that from the instrument panel. And we went flying up and both of us stopped about an inch with our helmets about an inch away from the <laughs> instrument panel. And we both looked at each other and it was like, uh-oh, we got to <laughs> tell the next guys not to do that. <laughs> so that was that was the one thing that was really a sort of surprising uh-oh, but that was not the design of the spacecraft or anything. It was us. <laughs> We're the ones who who loosened our shoulder straps. So, <laughs> yeah, so that was the only thing. And the lunar module, you know, it was such a wonderful spacecraft, everything about it. Oh, do you have some more time? Yeah, absolutely, we do. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you one wonderful story in, in the lunar module. And it was a surprise, but we couldn't have taken a picture of it. When you're in the lunar module, I, I, you know, I'm standing here, and just to my left is Jim McDivitt, okay? And I can reach over and touch Jim, but if I reach back a little bit behind Jim, or he reaches back behind me, we can put our hands on the cover of the ascent engine. It's projecting up into the spacecraft right behind us, and, you know, it's about two feet diameter, something like that. Uh, just a cylinder, you know, sitting there about two feet high and two feet in diameter, foot and a half in diameter, something like that. It's a tin can covering the upper end of the of the engine, the, the, you know, the combustion chamber and all of that. And we had to test the uh, uh, the ascent engine as part of our Apollo 9 testing of everything that could be tested. So Jim and I figured, well, wow, we better develop a bunch of hand signals 
so that in case something goes wrong while the ascent engine is burning, we can communicate what to do, cut it off or do this, that, or the other. So we developed a bunch of hand signals that we could use. And then we count down to the ascent engine burn, you know, five, four, three, two, one. And the computer supposedly lit it off. And number one, you know, it's way less than one G of acceleration. So you don't even, you're standing up in the lunar module, of course, and you, you can hardly feel it. You know, the shocking thing was there weren't any, any noise. And we thought, oh my God, it didn't light. And we look up at the instrument panel and it's there. You can see the chamber pressure, you know, and the partial G. And it was like completely silent. And that was a real shock. I mean, thing is right there. And of course, there's no noise at all. It's in a vacuum, but you know, we were sure it was going to make a bunch of noise. So that that was a real surprise. You, you would definitely expect it to make noise, that's for sure, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, it certainly did on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to say it was going to that this thing behind you started glowing or something. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that story before. <laughs> yeah, I would have jumped out or something. I mean, I know you can't jump out, but oh my god. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much, Rusty. Thank you so much for Thank spending so some time much. with us and answering our questions. I, I feel like we've covered a hell of a lot of ground here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've learned a lot. Like I, there's stuff that I'd never heard of in my life. So this is pretty awesome. Thank you. Well, yeah. that, that always happens. I'm sure. Yeah. That's, that's a good thing about what you guys do. Oh, thank you very yeah. much. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks very much. See you. Do blondes and Englishmen really have more space fun? Yes, they do. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. <laughs> Man, we covered so much ground there. That was freaking incredible. Yeah, that was a wonderful interview. Oh, my God. Yeah, there is so much stuff I, I had not. Honestly, I had no idea about like the Slayton story at, at Huntsville where you got the call and he's like, goodbye. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah that to me is incredible but hey they got the job he got the job done that's all that really oh, matters oh, absolutely they got the job done and hey skylab ended up having three awesome missions so that's all that matters so though no, i'd never heard that story in my life wow i'm just kind of right now i i feel like i talked to paul mccartney or something man i'm like huh. I'm, so, yes. I'm trying to come down like but no seriously uh rusty i think is one of the most underrated i'm saying rusty like yeah you know me and rusty we're we're friends but no rusty i think is honestly one of the most like underrated apollo astronauts ever you just don't hear about him enough i think and he had his hands in so much during apollo like obviously apollo 9 is is but he also you know he talked about you know before at nasa he was at the he was at mit and then he did skylab he did a bunch of other stuff he just doesn't get a lot of the attention or the flowers he deserves. I'm very happy this podcast is trying to correct that. You have to admit, it got quite emotional when he said if he had another flight, he would like to have gone to the moon. It feels this, yeah. such a shame that he didn't get that opportunity. Yeah, I, I wish he'd gone to the moon too. That would have been pretty cool. Yeah, I, I did enjoy that Deke Slayton story where he told Deke, no, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm sitting looking at a mug which I got when I was at the Deke Slayton Memorial Space Museum in Sparta, Wisconsin. And on it is a quote, which is, decide what you want to do and never give up until you've done it, which was said by Deke Slayton. So I love the fact that 
That's exactly what Rusty did in that instance. He decided what he was going to do, and he didn't give up until he'd done it, despite what Deke wanted. Anyway, Emily, we mentioned this earlier. You wrote a wonderful article about Rusty, and it was released uh, a few weeks ago. And within it, you talk a lot about how Rusty was perhaps slightly different within the astronaut office, and I think this Deke story is indicative of that, in that he didn't mind saying or doing what he wanted to do, and he came at things from a slightly different perspective from some of the other astronauts. But that approach didn't didn't always make him friends in the astronaut office. And your article really showed that with, with the way that our warden perceived yeah. Rusty. For example, the two of them nearly come into blows, as you said in this article. But then later on, our warden realising that the work that Rusty was doing was... It's the stuff that in 100 years' time, 200 years' time, is the stuff that everyone's going to be really grateful that he did. Yeah, it's very important. Uh, and and I, I thought that that article was wonderful because it showed that as well. And Sometimes someone being an outsider, being slightly different, having a different viewpoint, uh, that's often the people sometimes you need to take yeah. notice of. They're the people you've got to hire because they're the people who are going to sort of challenge what you think sometimes, and sometimes that's what you need. That's how I look at it. And I think Rusty was definitely one of those people who sort of, okay, I'm going to challenge the status quo a bit, but you're going to understand it a little while later. And I think the the Skylab example of him with Slayton, I think, was a perfect example of that. Like, okay, we fixed it. Now you get it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that was definitely one of my favorite interviews we've done. I had a smile on my face the whole time. Uh, Of course, the full unedited version of that interview will be up on our Patreon page. Thank you to our patrons for supplying so many questions as well. I would love to have asked so many more, but I I was very conscious of the time. Uh, But thank you to everyone who submitted some questions. I hope you're happy with the answers you received from your questions there. But yeah, check that out on patreon.com forward slash space and things. Are you a space boffin or mutineer? Please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. So, Emily, what's caught your eye in space flight since last week? Okay, this is kind of different, but um, I saw this article yesterday on Digital Trends, digitaltrends.com slash space, and it has an article about researchers have designed a space salad to keep astronauts healthy and happy. That is the headline of the article. And apparently, I'm reading this from the article, by the way, this salad developed by researchers at the University of Adelaide, I think I'm saying that right, in Australia, and the University of Nottingham in the UK contains a mixture of the following soybean, poppy, barley, kale, peanuts, sweet potato, and sunflower seeds. The precise amounts of each ingredient have been adjusted so that that it delivers the nutrients an astronaut would require as measured by a 2011 NASA study and so that it would taste good as well. They used a computational model of all things. That's pretty crazy. To make a salad. To make a salad. Yeah, they used a computational (laughs) model to devise a, a tasty salad and a team of volunteers who are not astronauts, but they did taste the salad and they seemed happy with it. And they said they would not, quote, wouldn't mind eating this all week as an astronaut. So I was just struck by the story. The salad does, there's a photo of the salad. It does look really good. I would personally eat it. It does look good. It looks like it would taste actually pretty good. I have a couple questions about the space salad. I'm wondering how you would eat it in space. I know if you were on Mars or the moon, you'd probably wouldn't be in as much trouble. But if you're like in microgravity, wouldn't the poppy seeds like 
They're going to have to make a special space salad bowl, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys had this over in the UK. McDonald's had salad shakers. Oh, I don't know if we did have them, you know. Okay, they were kind of gross, but basically McDonald's tried to make healthy food at one point. And they made this thing called, in the United States, they made this thing called salad shakers where you get a, it was like a salad in a drink, like a drink container. And they would put, you'd put the dressing in and shake it and then just eat it, right? Kind of dismal. So I'm wondering if they're going to have space salad shakers. I have no idea. So that just caught my eye, though. I thought it was funny. I do want to try the space salad. It actually does sound good. I just thought it was hilarious that they devised a computational model to make a salad, you know, like that's how advanced this science is. Seriously, though, I think, and we should probably investigate this maybe for a future episode, just putting it out there. I would love to have an episode about like space food. Yeah, why not? You know, I, that that is something that interests me because I'm like, how do you make stuff that's nutritious? Because loss of body mass is a problem in space. Well, as Rusty said, he would love to add some ice cream on on his flight. Yeah. I'm sure we all had those fake packs of astronaut ice cream when we were kids. Yeah, right? spoiler, they're not that delicious. Yeah. We've all eaten stuff that's freeze-dried. It's not bad, but it's not the real thing, you know? So I've always been interested in that because it's like, okay, how do you make food that people want to eat where they can actually keep up their health in space? That's a challenge. So yes, the first... Uh, as far as I know, the first space salad has been invented. Amazing. Hey, it reminds me of in this country when uh, Pizza Hut became Pasta Hut for a bit because it was trying, <laughs> oh my to, God. Uh, tr- trying to show it had healthy alternatives. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's just something crazy that happened in this country. At some that's, point. It didn't last long. That's funny. And what about you, Dave? What have you been looking at this week? Well, obviously, it was nice to see that the space... X Crew 6 mission got underway on time on Thursday after we did our episode. I fully expected a scrub after we decided to dedicate a whole episode to it, but it went off. It was amazing, which is good to see. They're now on board the ISS. And also in that episode, we talked about the agreement between NASA and Roscosmos for sharing rides. Well, it's been announced that Russia are going to also fly some cosmonauts on Crew 7 and Crew 8. So there's a bit of follow-up on that story. I don't know if you saw this, but Japan tried to launch a new rocket this week on Monday, the H3 rocket. And unfortunately, it didn't make it to orbit, which is a shame because it had an advanced optical satellite. And obviously, that was lost, which is a shame. So... (sighs) But hopefully they've sussed it out so they can figure out, okay, the next time we'll get it. Yeah, apparently they've traced it to an issue with the electrical system. But obviously that's a shame. It's another reminder, space is hard. And we mentioned this last week, the moment you start thinking something's routine, someone brings a new rocket out and you remember how hard it is to do this in the first place. Yeah. New rockets are hard to get going. It's hard to get a rocket off the ground successfully straight off the bat. Very few people have done that. There was an article in Ars Technica this week. I I won't take too long, but the article basically was about space and rocket startups and how it's just really brutal because you're dealing with, is this rocket going to go up safely and how much money do we have to do this? It's very tough. People think, oh yeah, aerospace, there's so much money in it. I'm like, not if you lose it, you launch a rocket and it doesn't work and it, you know, something happens to it, then you've lost that investment. People lose confidence and... It's really hard. If it was easy, everybody, I think, would be doing it. And I think for 
people in charge of these companies or agencies like JAXA, it's probably emotionally difficult too because that's your work and and now you've just seen it go in like a couple of seconds. Yeah, I've just found that article. I'm going to read it. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, this this Japanese rocket's been in, in development for t- 10 years, you know, and, and then for the first mission to then end up as it has done, it's just, it is just brutal. You're right. It's it's a it's a brutal business, and I don't know what the answer is there. There, I'm not sure there is one. It's just going to be. It's always going to be difficult, isn't it? And I think now doing it under such scrutiny, there was a period of time in the '90s, early noughties, probably all the way through to the the, the teens. I don't know what we call them. Anyway, uh, through to the early 2010, 2011 period, where you could be trying new things out and no one know it wouldn't be as as in the public eye as much as it is now the internet has made uh everything a lot more there for for you to follow and to watch and you you foul publicly now more so than you did 10 15 years ago 20 years ago exactly i think it's more stressful now because Social media. People have their own hot takes on social media, unfortunately, some of which are really inappropriate. As, as we mentioned before, especially with Astra and Virgin Galactic, people base their investment decisions on what happens and what they see on the social, me- on social media and what they're following. And while this isn't perhaps relevant for the JAXA launch that's just fouled, because that's government funded... But the, the private companies, when they foul, I mean, they're doing it publicly and they lose their backers straight away. And that's what's really tough, I think, for them in particular. Yeah. Anyway, that's what's caught my eye this week. Streaming from Earth's northern hemisphere to the solar system and beyond, you're listening to the Space and Things podcast. So thank you for listening this week. It's really quite something we're able to talk to the likes of Rusty Swicart. And thank you for listening so that we can make this happen. When we started the podcast, however many years ago now, three years ago nearly, if you'd said we were going to interview the likes of Rusty Swicart and Fred Hayes and Dr. Joe Kerwin, I don't know if I'd believe you, but there we are. We've we've done it. And, and hopefully we'll be able to get a few more people as well. So you may notice that I've changed a few things up within the podcast this week. And I'm hoping to continue to mix things up. We asked our Patreon subscribers to record themselves doing their own versions of our intro and outro to add some other bits of audio, which we call stings. And John Wizenhunt, who appeared on the podcast when we spoke about the space hipsters book prize he's already responded with some amazing clips so there are a few of them here today which i very much enjoyed putting in thanks john of course if you'd like to help then sign up to our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash space and things and a big thanks to misty for signing up last week yes that really does help us a lot and it's great that we can get you involved in the podcast as much as possible with your questions and now your own audio stings so please keep getting involved, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. This has been the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Childs. <laughs>